You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. On this episode of The Luxury Item, we'll be talking about how luxury is being redefined and expanded to mean more than it used to. There is no doubt that 2020 has been a year of reset. It has also marked a reset for luxury brands. As we contemplate a post-COVID world, the luxury business is going to change accordingly. It's not that the products considered luxury in the past won't be in the future. It's that they are grappling with a fundamental shift in what luxury means. As consumers become more environmentally and socially aware and digital channels become more important as sources of inspiration and sales. To talk to me today about what luxury consumers want now is Nadia Tuma Weldon. Senior Vice President and Director of Truth Central, the global intelligence unit of advertising and marketing giant McCann World Group. In addition to this role, she is the founder and lead of the company's first global luxury practice, a group of category experts whose mission it is to recast and redefine luxury for a modern era. Since joining Truth Central in 2013, Nadia has led two waves of the truth about privacy, the truth about global brands, truth about age, the truth about affluence, and the truth about sustainability. Nadia has been interviewed and featured in publications such as Fast Company, Luxury Daily, PBS, Forbes, and Ad Age, and has appeared as a speaker at CES, Social Media Week, Female Quotient, and others. And most recently, she was named to Luxury Daily's prestigious Luxury Women to Watch in 2021 list. I'm thrilled to have her on the show today. Welcome to the luxury item, Nadia. Thank you, Scott. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm happy to have you on the show. First, I have to congratulate you on uh, recent, recently being honored by Luxury Daily as one of the luxury women to watch in 2021. Oh, thank you. It was such an honor. Um, I'm in amazing company. So if anyone wants to read all those wonderful bios and perspectives, it's all on Luxury Daily's site. Let's jump right into it. It would be great if you could tell us about Truth Central unit of McCann and what your role is and how does the luxury practice come into play here? I know that McCann has, you know, amazing clients, you know, like L'Oreal and MasterCard and Coca-Cola and Verizon, a bunch of other ones. So what does Truth Central do? Yes. Great question and good research on our, on our big global clients. Um, Yeah. So Truth Central is McCann World Group's global intelligence unit. So our mission is really to uncover what we like to think of as deeply human truths all over the world. So Truth Central has been around for about 10 years now, and I've been with the group for a little bit over seven, so almost Mm -hmm. its whole history. And um, I think there are a few things that define us a bit differently from perhaps other intelligence units in other agencies in our view. So I think first, we really take this idea of the truth very seriously. We're really about understanding enduring truths, not so much trends. So what we like to say is we focus on truths for the 99%, not trends for the 1%, which of course we keep an eye on those, but they're not the bread and butter of what we do as a unit. So because of that, I think many of our studies remain really relevant and even cutting edge, even a few years after we complete them because of that approach. So we, we call them truth studies and they really focus on big macrocultural topics that we think are what ultimately shape people's behavior and attitudes and of course ultimately their relationship with brands yeah yeah is that where you got the you know i talk about the truth about privacy the truth about global brands the truth about affluence the truth about sustainability i see a pattern there 
Yes. So we, yes, they, those are exactly right. And we have um, many truth studies, over 20 that we've done in our 10-year history. And then we've also started to track those studies as well over time to see how that culture is shifting. So yes, they're called truth studies. And they, they look at those big trends because I think, I'm sorry, those big forces, because I think many times our clients and, and brands and businesses for no fault of their own, they speak about people in ways that tend to think about people as only living in their category, right? So um, people only live in a world of cars or they only live in a world of lipstick or they only live in a world of credit cards. But we all know the truth is, is that people live in a world and unless we can truly understand and illuminate that world, then we don't understand as brands how we can play a meaningful role within that context. So that's why it's so important for us to really understand the big macro, really start macro, really understand those truths, because without that, those truths, without an understanding of real people's lives, then it's very difficult to come up with a digital strategy or a marketing campaign or product development without, without really understanding that. So we run these studies globally. They are truly global. They're in over 30, at least 30 countries around the world. And we do both quant and qual. So the quant is significant. Um, in our history, we've amassed millions of data points since we've started. And then we also have really innovative qual that we do to kind of create stories around that data. So, um, you know, for example, in our truth about affluence, which you mentioned, um, which is one of my favorite studies we've done for obvious reasons. Um, we, in addition to the data in all in, um, in nearly 20 affluent cities around the world or sort of up and coming cities around the world, we recruited like someone wealthy that we knew. Um, and then we had them recruit their wealthy friends to come over for a dinner party. So mm -hmm. you had friends with wealth kind of speaking about things that I think oftentimes these types of individuals don't often feel comfortable talking about, but they were on their own turf. They had great food, they had good wine, and that became the focus group and that became the qualitative research. And so these affluent dinner parties became ground zero for us to really understand what is affluence? Why does it matter? How did you get it? Um, what does it mean for the world? What's the future of it? You know, all these things. Um, we also recently, well, we're going to be launching our latest Truth About Youth report, which is our third one. And this one focuses on Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And again, our, our qualitative methods were we actually, instead of, you know, people like us in our 30s and 40s going out and trying to like see what the young kids are doing, we actually recruited members of Gen Z. We trained them in anthropological methods. So then they go out and they're sort of our, our Gen Z anthropologists. And then they report back what's going on in culture from their own view. So, you know, you start to see how we create these stories that are really from the streets and really from people's lives. So... All of this work is supported by an amazing network of champions around the world. So, you know, many of us, we've lived around the world and we're sort of live in either New York or London, um, but we've transferred and we can talk about that as well. But we also have people in every McCann office around the world, which is, I think, in most countries who help us, you know, make sense of a data point, you know, oh, this, this data point in Brazil, we don't understand it. Can you give us the context to that? Um, or they help us run the qualitative in their countries, or we'll do roundtables with them and have them help us review the work and, and augment it and make it better. So, um, so that's really how we do it. And we bring that to clients to help sort of open their minds to perhaps opportunities they hadn't thought of, um, you know, help supplement some of the work that they're doing internally. 
Um, and, you know, we also do a lot of public speaking and things like that. So I think, um, you know, my, my role as global director since I joined um, has been constant, but then there's been sort of these other additional roles that I've taken on. Um, and the company has been amazing in supporting my growth through those, those different opportunities. So, yeah. So back in 2016, I relocated to Asia for two years. Um, and that was obviously an amazing experience. And the goal with that was, was really twofold. So one was to grow a true central way of thinking and, and using that thinking with clients to grow the business in the region. But then the other, of course, was to work with these teams in that region really closely and almost be like a bit of a cultural ambassador. You know, I think a lot of times um, brands will say things like, we need to win in China or like Southeast Asia is a priority without maybe really understanding that like layered richness of these cultures. And I think by being a Westerner and really immersing myself in these countries and really living there, I mean, day in and day out, um, I can at least comfortably speak about these cultures in, in more of like a two-dimensional way, you know, by just saying like Asia, <laughs> you know, obviously right. these are like incredibly rich, uh, rich things. So, so how, how did the luxury practice come about? Yeah. So um, once I came back from Asia um, a couple of years ago, we were sort of thinking what the next thing was going to be. And I have sort of always been relatively obsessed with the culture of luxury. And what I when I say that, what I mean is that I'm much less interested in things like the newest handbag or the fashion collection or, or whatever that is, but much more about the, the culture of aspiration and of image. So I think in a lot of ways, when you look at the culture of luxury, you could almost get a sense of where culture as a whole is going. So I think sometimes luxury is perceived as slow or behind the times, but actually luxury brands sometimes are the first to make big moves in, in things like inclusion or sustainability that ultimately trickle down into the mass market. So that's what really interests me. You know, it's about how these brands are operating, artifacts, how they influence society, how people think about success, how they aspire to grow, all these things. And I started to think about this a long time ago, sort of in my free time, you know, and, and was just sort of a passion point of mine. Um, so fast forward to joining McCann. Um, so when I joined, I actually inherited um, from my predecessor, the truth about affluence, which was like such a gift. You know, I was super excited <laughs> about that. I was like, oh, that's the last one. Great. <laughs> right, that's your launching pad. Yeah, exactly. So um, not long after, so I really, I love that study. The thing with studying affluence and studying luxuries, I'm sure you know really well, Scott, is that it's difficult to get to some of these people. Um, it's expensive research. Um, you know, it can be sometimes some of these brands are a little bit closed in terms of what they want to share. So I somehow convinced leadership to give me a little bit of a budget to continue to build IP around luxury research. And um, this is about, um, I would say about six years ago, I created a platform called the Tastemakers Council. And the Tastemakers Council was this sort of semi-regular event where we would bring together thought leaders in the space of luxury in a deeply immersive sort of experiential dinner that was really lovely. And we would discuss the forces that we thought were shaping the future of luxury and affluence. And, um, you know, we would, we would bring together a real mix. You know, it would be people from the world of like old luxury or new luxury or digital or analog. And it was really kind of smashing together all these people. And, um, you know, we would discuss everything from 
how do you balance the need for commerce with true creativity or how do you define truly define what american luxury is or um, you know, how could we harness beauty to save the world through sustainability? And, and the dinners and the thought leadership that ensued from them um, actually became fuel for a lot of thought leadership. And when I was in Asia, I actually continued to, to do some tastemakers interviews, which was really, really fascinating. So all of that kind of came together. And when I came back from, um, from Asia and we were thinking about maybe what was next, um, I wrote a proposal to the leadership to, the, to create a dedicated global group that will be responsible for creating thought leadership and content for the network around luxury specifically. And it would have a very specific philosophy and a very specific mission. Um, and it would consist of a cross global group of luxury experts um, and, and it worked. And I was able to, to create this group of individuals where now we have representation from everywhere from the UK, France, Italy, Colombia, Trinidad, um, Brazil, Dubai, China, and Japan, of course, in the US. And our focus really, our main mission is to redefine and recast luxury for a modern era. Um, and we do that through helping our clients' businesses grow, whether that's just an everyday brand that wants to become more premium or all the way up to a luxury brand that's really seeking to understand how culture is changing. So, you know, the, the crisis has changed the way we do business. And how has it changed the way you're working with clients over the past year? Um, what are they asking you for now? What kind of insights are they turning to you for? Mm. Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, there are very uh, consistent themes that have come up relating to these macro shifts that we're seeing as a result of the pandemic. And I think they are questions that all brands and businesses are asking these days. You know, I think uh, everything from what does new retail look like? That's a really big one. Um, understanding Gen Z, what this new generation looks like, what they value, how they think about luxury. Um, diversity and inclusion are, are also very, very big. But then I think overall, how are views of luxury changing as a result of the pandemic? But I think my view has always been that throughout all of this, it's really important to track culture and, and not just the virus. And this idea of you know, I hear so much from clients, like, when are we returning to normal? Um, I just think it's simply not going to happen. So I think what we need to understand are how are people shaping their lives so we can evolve with them and not trying to force fit into an outdated model of the past. You know, you really have a, a wonderful newsletter on Substack called Elevated LLC, where you share your personal observations on the culture of luxury. And recently, right after the violent storming of the Capitol by the rioters, you wrote this piece titled, you know, is it okay to talk about luxury? And in the light of the dev devastation of the pandemic and the raw emotions from these riots, you did seem to do some soul searching around luxury. So could you talk about that piece? Yeah, sure. Um, and thanks for reading it. It's, I sort of woke up in a sweat one, one morning <laughs> thinking, wait, like, what am I going to write about? Like the world just felt so, um, so dark in that moment. Um, I think since then things have started to look a little bit brighter, but I think just going back a step, you know, even before the pandemic, even before all of the unrest that we were seeing, if you remember, you know, it wasn't as if the world was this utopia. Um, you know, there were still really big problems facing society. And I think like any crisis that often shines a light on, on problems that were hiding in, in plain sight. 
So obviously we started 2020 with, you know, wildfires in Australia. I mean, there was a huge divide between rich and poor already. There was a lot going on. And since I've sort of more officially started studying luxury, writing about luxury, I was always really sensitive to this question. Like, why are we talking about luxury when the world is literally on fire? And I right. think that it's always stuck in my head and in guiding the practice and guiding the thought leadership we do. Um, but I think ultimately there's a reason why luxury, however it tends to be defined, has endured for thousands and thousands of years. Because I, my belief and my view is that luxury really is based in enduring principles that um, are not just aspirational, I actually believe are necessary. And I have said before, luxury is necessary. And by that, what I mean is that at its core, luxury principles and, and qualities are rooted in elements of beauty and respect and care and attention to detail and manners and dignity and heritage and wisdom, you know, all these really wonderful things. And I think at best, those are the things that can provide an antidote to so much of what's going on in the world. So, you know, I tend to think that luxury and luxury brands are expert at crafting a world or a universe that people really want to be a part of. And if you can capture those characteristics and really imbue them into everything you, you do, um, people will look up to that and they'll want to emulate it. So I, I started to write about, you know, imagine what if we had more of these qualities in society? You know, I guess, I guess when I talk about luxury, that's what I'm talking about. Um, maybe not so much the conspicuous consumption or sometimes this like grotesque version of haves and have not, but you know, sometimes those things really create the tensions in society. So yeah, at a societal level, I really did some soul searching and I, and I started to also think about societies where culture, the culture of luxury sort of is just the culture. So if you start to think about places like France or Japan, you know, these places where um, people tend not to want to stand out with logos or like super conspicuous consumption where luxury is really, uh, really lies in the taste and the attention to detail and the manners and the beauty and the respect, you know, things like things that are more societal. So, um, and I think places like France and Japan really have like this heritage of luxury that guides a lot of, of what doesn't, um, the way that people behave in society. So I think there's a lot to learn there. You know, I'm not saying these countries don't have troubles of their own, you know, nowhere is perfect, but I think, um, harnessing some of these qualities in the ways that brands and businesses and organizations and even governments could behave um, might be something that we could aspire to in the future. What kind of consumer behaviors when it comes to luxury do you think have changed? What are you seeing? You know, what are consumers putting value on both in brands and just luxury overall? Mm. Yeah, I think, I think a lot has been said and written already about the fact that this pandemic has really accelerated a lot of things that were already in motion. So, right. you know, in other words, overall, culturally, it's not so much that we've taken these like extreme left turns, but maybe changes that have been a long time coming were perhaps accelerated by five to 10 years, say. So the most obvious things I think are, you know, remote working or e-commerce and things, but the things that I've been most interested in are the shifts in consciousness about our behaviors. And I think obviously because I'm an insights person, I'm thinking about human behavior and, and attitudes. So I think prior to the pandemic, we were maybe living with a bit too much pizzazz, if you know what I mean, right? It was right. all too much. We were buying too much. We we're going on airplanes too often. We were eating out too much. We were wasting too much and all of it. And I think with this quick and drastic and quite frankly, democratic pause, you know, it affected everyone. 
we were really left to examine our habits. So I think we were, a lot of people were at home and they were thinking, why do I have all this stuff? Why was I running around like a crazy person for so long? Why was I not spending enough time with my family? Why was I on the road so often? Um, even all the way to last summer, people really thinking, why have I not been paying attention to these underserved communities? You know, all of these things that are deeply, deeply important transformations that we need to make as a society and speak to everything from sustainability to, um, to inclusion. So I think a lot of brands are grappling with this new reality and how they address it. So, so you know, do you I, think it really is the new reality? Because I'm wondering if, if you know, everybody's kind of retreating back and opening their eyes to these things. And when we come out of the pandemic, are they going to revert to the old ways now that they, you know, between revenge spending and, and revenge shopping and just going back to the way it was? And, you know, the sustainability thing was nice while I was stuck inside and, 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 uh, and read more about it and it sounded good. But, you know, now that I'm back out again, I'm sort of going back to what's tried and true, what I know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And that, that is the question. I do think that, um, and it's also going to depend on who you are and where you live, of course. So right. I think for a lot of people, it has been a massive wake-up call. And I'm speaking on the individual level, so not, not necessarily on the corporate or governmental level. So I do think a lot of people have rethought, um, you know, listen, um, I don't need all this stuff. I, you know, don't need to travel as much. Um, but I think when people say things like, I can't wait for things to be back to normal, I really don't think that they're saying, and they mean that as like really back to normal, like the way that we were going too fast, doing too much, consuming too much, et cetera. I think when people say that they mean, I want to hang out with my friends again. I want to go out to dinner every so often. I want to go on a trip. You know, I think so many things that have happened and it's been long enough now, you know, I think a lot of people they have this whole thing where it's like, it takes three weeks to, to, to create a new habit. You know, we're, we've been doing this for a year. So, right, right. you know, this, these are new habits that we have. And I actually think going back to normal, whatever that looks like is actually going to be very, very difficult. So I think from an individual level, people have made a lot of big changes in their lives. That being said, people need an outlet. You know, this idea of, of staying home all the time and not seeing people, like there will be, a big celebration of like going out to dinner and like really getting dressed up or going to a shop and like really enjoying that. You know, I think, I think people are sick of zoom and doing everything online. I yeah. Think I mean, it'll be, it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if those, this whole idea of conscious conscientious consumption is going to stick around this whole idea of, you know, buy less, buy better, buy authentic will be permanent with consumers. And yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's the individual side of things, but you know, you can't rely or put all that pressure just on individuals. I think right. businesses, and that's exactly what we're trying to help our clients understand is how have people's lives shifted? How have they changed their points of view on things? And, and you know, I think a lot of businesses, far less, but, you know, we definitely hear things in the last few months of like, okay, when are we going to pre-pandemic levels of spending? You know, when are we going to pre-pandemic? Right. You know, and, and that sort of hurts my heart because I think it ignores the fact that people's lives have changed and they want different things. And brands we know have tremendous power um, and tremendous resources to do a lot of those things. And, you know, I think one of the things this pandemic has revealed, particularly in this sort of so-called like K-shaped recovery is that, you know, some people are doing pretty well but a lot of people are not doing very well. And, you know, brands that sort of are just based on like growth 
it's not sustainable because one, maybe you, you know, you might not have as many customers as you wanted, but two, you know, there is this imperative for, for, for brands to really earn their role in society. And because of that, they're going to have to think about ways of, you know, including more people that have not been included in the conversation before mm-hmm. or changing their methods of production or maybe not having, you know, 16 collections a year, um, you know, all of these things, there's a role for all these things, but I think we need to reimagine what it looks like because ultimately this is our future. And if companies want to survive and be, be alive, you know, they need to be able to have the right customers, be able to participate in their universe and, you know, have a healthy planet on which to do it. Yeah. It seems to happen every time there is a crisis, you know, luxury brands like Hermes and Dior and Vuitton have remained pretty resilient despite the challenges, you know, posed by global COVID-19 pandemic, you know, heritage brands that have been defined by more timeless aesthetics, if you will, quiet luxury, seem to be doing well. I'm wondering what that says, this whole idea of, you know, buying these heritage brands during a crisis, what it says about consumer values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this phenomenon is is nuanced. I think there's several reasons why some of these brands you mentioned continue to survive despite extreme economic downturns. Um, for one, obviously, there's a proportion of the population that is usually relatively recession-proof. You know, we saw that in 2008, and we're seeing it now. Um, and I think in both cases, for the most part, there is a renewed sense that conspicuous consumption, things that are very flashy and loud, um, is seen in bad taste because of so much suffering across a wide swath of the population. So mm-hmm. obviously in 2008, there was a huge rise of like Phoebe Philo Celine and the row, which were really like poster children for stealth wealth. But I do think this time is a little bit different. So as I said before, you know, a lot has been talked about this like K-shaped recovery curve, which was not talked about last time. And um, I don't know if anyone, any of your listeners listened to the great professor, Scott Galloway, who yes, um, is never one to mince words. Yes. He recently said, you know, the people at the top right now are living their best lives. Right. And I think that's a hard truth to hear, but it is the truth. Many of pe- many people, I think, who are lucky enough to have kept their jobs and can work from home, they have it pretty good. You know, they have more flexibility in their schedules than ever before. They get to spend time with their family. Um, in many cases, they're not even traveling and going out all the time, so they're even saving money. So you know, with that extra, you know, there's the whole term of like lockdown money, you know, that people will use for something beautiful that they want to purchase that they wouldn't have done before. But I think the other piece is that many people who are in a position to buy these brands are not necessarily like stuck at home the way most people are. So, you know, a lot of people are staying in second homes that are spacious and beautiful, or they relocated somewhere warm that's near a beach. Um, And I think, that's actually a really interesting shift that I, I think is interesting in terms of luxury, the things, what is it that money can actually buy these days? So I think it's almost taken this really simple approach, like, oh, I can buy fresh air, sunshine, space. Mm-hmm. And if I have children involved, I can get a real life tutor or maybe a pod teacher. So my child doesn't have to do Zoom school. You know, it's almost like this really back to basics, like bottom of the luxury hierarchy model. Right. Um, so I think that said, you know, this population, they're not those living in a tiny city apartment and, you know, trying to do like zoom cocktail parties. I think they're actually still going out to dinner. Maybe they're living somewhere warm. Um, and they are still using handbags and getting dressed up and things that, 
most people don't really see a need for. Um, I was listening to a, an interview um, in the fall, in the autumn with um, Michael Kors on the business of fashion. And mm -hmm. he was talking about stories about going to like his friend's homes at Fire Island or the Hamptons and was saying that like people really got dressed, like they, they got dressed, but it wasn't for Instagram. It wasn't for the paper. Sort of this idea of showing off was in bad taste, but it was really about like this pleasure of dressing up, which today kind of feels like a luxury in and of itself. And I think to the point of like, yes, we're investing in timeless pieces and timeless brands. I actually think that there is a little bit of fatigue around being practical. Like, I think people are just, they, they want to get out there. There's a lot of pent up energy. People are dying to get out of their ruts. Like I know I am for sure. <laughs> um, you know, my, my husband and I recently went on like a secret little trip. It was our first trip in a year. We went somewhere warm and there was a lot of experimental luxury going on. And if I'm being honest, as much as I think we want to say, oh, everyone's like going back to like what's, what's tried and true and tested. Um, I actually thought it was a breath of fresh air to see people having fun. Um, so maybe there'll be a bit of a mix going forward. I hope so. You know, pre-pandemic, it was already becoming clear that customers were prioritizing experiences over things. You know, new business models emerged to ensure that they would keep buying clothes in one way or another, you know, whether it's from rental or online. But when the pandemic hit, traveling, visiting stores, and even going out to eat became impossible for almost everyone. So curiously, people started buying things again. Late last year, luxury giants like LVMH and Carrying and Hermes showed strong sales in leather goods, apparel, watches, and jewelry, and home goods. So do you think consumers will continue to prioritize things longer term after the pandemic? Or do you think there'll be a sudden shift back to the pre-pandemic consumer trends when it comes to experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I've always taken a bit of a a, a bit of issue with this whole experiences versus things argument, um, to be honest. So I, I'm on the old end of the millennial generation. Mm -hmm. Um, and no one talks about millennials anymore because <laughs> Gen Z <laughs> is, is like all the rage, but, right, millennials so we're, we're out of spot. but I, but if you remember millennials were like the most marketed to, you know, generation ever. And there was so much talk about, well, millennials want experiences, millennials want experiences. And I always said, I, I just don't, I just take issue with it because like people are definitely still buying things. Like, excuse me, like, let's look at Amazon. Let's look at everything that's going on. Um, I don't think people will ever tire of having things and having beautiful things. But I think what was important was this idea that yes, experiences are very important, but even the things that you want and the things that you acquire and that have special meaning for you are wrapped up in experiences and stories. And that's what makes them special. And so that is why with my generation, you got this rise of like the maker movement, um, even like the direct to consumer brand, you know, blands or whatever you Blans, want to call them. Right. They all have, yeah, they all have like a story and they have, you know, a real heartfelt thing to them because it's not, you know, it's not enough to just, you know, show the bag and be like, okay, here's a logo on it. You want it's it, right? It's the story behind the bag, right? You're buying the bag and you're buying the story behind their bag. And that's that's what luxury ends up being. You know, we, we talk a lot about, um, in my practice, about this idea that luxury is this powerful combination of love and skill. If you have love and that is that obsession and that, that wonder and that creativity, partnered with that skill of really knowing how to make something and the savoir-faire and the heritage, 
when you have those two things, then you get luxury. I think oftentimes what you're seeing with a lot of these new quote modern luxury brands is that they're lacking in one or the other, right? So they might have like a technically perfect website or, or app, but there's just no human love or, or you know, is that sort of emotiveness to it? Or you have a brand that's all love and, you know, all sort of obsession with a particular solving a particular problem, but there's not a lot of skill for it. And so there's customer service issues and there's delivery issues and all these things. So um, I think there, there's something really to that. But, um, you know, I think to the point about experiences and things and, and people buying things and everything is is online, um, you know, I I think one of the things we tend to forget is, is just how important the human being is. And you can't replace that. An algorithm will never replace that because an algorithm doesn't feel anything. An algorithm is sort of pointed at something in program. So for, for all the talk of AI and ML, and we actually just participated in the virtual um, CES 2021 right. um, festival, which was the first year I was doing it in New York, not in Las Vegas. Um, you know, they talked all about all these things. And I kept thinking there's, there's the magic in a human being. There's the magic in a person knowing you and helping you and, and being there with you. Um, and one of our tastemakers once said something which I loved in the context of luxury where she said, humans are too weird to make sense. And what she meant by that was that a human will think of something for you or make a connection about something that you might not have thought about and, and really give you a sense of discovery or creativity or indulgence that a technology or an algorithm or a machine just never, never could do. So, um, so I guess to get back to your original question, I think experiences are going to be, they'll always be important because that is what makes up life. That is life. Things right. will also be important, but I think this idea that we have to put all of our eggs into the e-commerce basket is misguided. I think in no industry or category is it more important than in luxury that you have human and technology working perfectly together. Well, speaking of buying things, you know, instead of showing off a luxury bag or car, many consumers were actually displaying their wellness during the stay-at-home orders. You know, health and vitality became this new luxury and owning a Peloton bike or a mirror, you know, has become the new status symbol. So do you think consumers will start diverting dollars away from traditional luxury goods to more wellness related brands and experiences? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a huge topic. And I, I have a lot of thoughts about this one, Scott. Um, I think there's a few different things. I think from maybe more of a superficial level, I think this ties back to the idea of affluent individuals being able to live in places that allow for good health. You know, um, I think one of the biggest conversations about this pandemic has been you know, lower income or overlooked communities are at high risk. And I think this, of course, has to do with the fact that they have less access to things like healthcare and fresh food. But oftentimes that these communities are living in polluted areas, right? And they don't have the means to change their location. So that's like back to that basic, basic thing of when it comes to health, you can see certain people pick up and move to the countryside or somewhere warm where they can have fresh air. So that that's sort of one thing um, that's that's happened. But I think in general, yeah, I mean, people are able to engage in activities um, at home now, and there's so much flexibility with that. So um, like you said, like pe because people aren't traveling or dining or going out to shows or movies, um, maybe they're spending the same amount of money, but they're redistributing it. But I think um, this idea of pursuing wellness on your own terms, like even in my work, you know, you'll have people go out for a jog in the middle of the day or get on their Peloton in between meetings. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. Like the fact that 
you have that flexibility to take care of yourself. Um, and I also think this idea of like having to go somewhere, you know, to have an experience of wellness no longer being the case and you can do it in the comfort of your own home. Like I personally love being able to have coffee on my couch and then like go right into a yoga class when it's convenient for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have a friend who was like a total class pass junkie. Like she would go to like spinning and then to this other place and then like whatever. And she told me recently how happily surprised she's been that the five feet by five feet in front of her TV is like all she needs. Um, and so, you know, you do have, you know, even wellness being transformed. Um, and in my apartment, like it's a glass building, I can see all, the, you know, you just see like every window has a Peloton bike in it. So definitely there's something going on there. But I think from a broader perspective, there's a, there's a bigger conversation to be had, which is that I think oftentimes when we talk about wellness, we're focusing a lot on the physical, maybe the emotional, but oftentimes it's, you know, it's what are we eating? What are we doing physically? But wellness is incredibly multidimensional. And we know this from our, our truth about wellness study that we've been tracking for many years. Um, you know, wellness consists of everything from mental to emotional, to spiritual, to social, to financial wellness. And I think that's been a slightly frustrating thing to watch during this pandemic because you know, there's this idea of washing your hands and wearing a mask, but you're not addressing things like social wellness or financial wellness or emotional wellness. The problem is that all of these elements make up the whole. And if any one of them is weak, the whole system falls apart. Right. Um, so even if you take financial wellness, right, which is something that isn't spoken about enough, right? If you are not feeling financially well, well, maybe you're not sleeping because you're, you're thinking about it. And so you're your mental health is suffering, or maybe you are having fights with your spouse about it. And so your social wellness is suffering, et cetera. The whole thing kind of falls apart. So from, from my view, I really would love to see brands and luxury brands in particular, really take a wider view of that and, and think about, oh, okay, there's all these different places of wellness I can play a role in. Um, there's, a, there's a place for me to be a wellness brand. And oftentimes what we talk about at True Central is that you know, now and in the future, all brands will need to be wellness brands, you know? And so how, how are you contributing to that ecosystem? Even if you're like an investment bank, you know, like you have a role to play, whether it's not even about the affluent, maybe not being good financial planners, but maybe dad's working too much and never gets to spend time with his family. Like, what are you going to do about, about that, for example? Right. You know, diversity and inclusiveness are obviously a very important topic right now. And Truth Central conducted a global study in 2019 called The Truth About Diversity. So what were some of the insights that came out of that study that luxury marketers can learn from? Yeah, that's a great question. I love The Truth About Diversity. And we've, we've actually since then created um, a, a new study called Truths for Change Race, which, is, um, which really digs deep into the specifics of race um, following the Black Lives Matter protest um, as a result of the murder of George, George Floyd last summer. Mm-hmm. But um, the truth about diversity, it, it focuses on several different areas of exploration. And I think one of the things we really love about it is it's really meant to be a tool for conversation with our, with our clients. So I think one of the advantages of our work at True Central is that we really do just we reflect what we hear in the world. We report back, there's no biased opinion. So our clients are able to kind of hear the truth and we have a discussion about what that means in the context of their brand. So I think from a luxury perspective, there are a few different pieces. So I think the first is the understanding that diversity runs really deeply and we are a global unit. And so we do take a global view. 
um, diversity is everywhere. It's the new normal. It is just, it is the world, but it is going to mean different things to different people. So in the US, for example, obviously a lot of that conversation is around race and culturally that is the focus and we're really seeing that play out. But what we're also finding in our truth for change race work is that race and issues of color manifest all over the world. So it's, it's not just a US problem, but that's really where the concentration of the energy is here. Mm -hmm. Now, in the terms of the nuances, so for example, in China, where you have a bit more of a homogenous society superficially, diversity through our research manifests itself actually through socioeconomic class. So that's where that tension is. Whereas in a place like Japan, um, we found in our research that it runs along an urban rural divide. And then of course, in other places, like in parts of Africa, we see it's more defined by religion or by tribe. So, you know, that's, that's a really big thing to understand is that diversity is going to look very different depending on where in the world you are. But I think the, this next point is that there's a big caveat here around the complexities of identity. So I think it's really tempting for us to put people into boxes, you know, you're Asian or you're, LGBTQ or you're differently abled, but the truth is that identity is, is more complicated than that. You know, um, if you ask yourself or you ask anyone on the street to def define themselves, they're probably gonna say different things like I am passionate or I'm kind or I'm an artist or I'm really, you know, interested in sports. Um, I think there's this really, um, there's this oversimplification of representation that there is some fatigue around. So, you know, for example, like personally, I don't really want a brand to speak to me like as a woman, you know, or like remind me that I'm a woman and I have power as a woman. In fact, yeah. you know, if I never see another ad that shows a woman in boxing gloves, like I'd be really happy. <laughs> you know, so there, so there is a bit of that chicken and an egg. Um, but just further to that, um, you know, after, after last summer with the protests, um, you know, there's been a lot of soul searching and luxury this year, I think. And I did quite a bit of soul searching around it. And launched a program within our practice called Elevated Voices. And Elevated Voices was this very dedicated platform that we created to co-create a future of luxury where everyone feels included. And I know that that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. You know, it's the idea that um, one of the major shifts we're seeing in the work we do around luxury is from exclusion to inclusion. And this idea that for so long, luxury was really almost made its name by saying that most people don't have a place in it. Um, and so what we're doing as a group, as a global group of many different shapes and colors and orientations and experiences is we are um, first living our values. So we are having tough discussions around luxury. We're reading and listening to content that we normally wouldn't to understand different perspectives. And we're channeling all of that into strategic imperatives for our clients to understand how they can also co-create a future of luxury where you have a wider breadth of voices and participation. What topics matter most to luxury marketers now and what topics should they be thinking about more of that they're not paying attention to now or not paying enough attention to? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll probably sound like a broken record. I think two of the most critical pieces of our times are sustainability and inclusion. Um, I don't know if you, you're familiar with the group in the UK called Extinction Rebellion. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, they kind of said quite starkly, there's no business to be done on a dead planet. And I think that's right. You know, you, you have a, um, and I, and I think a lot of companies are doing this. I think 
um, many companies have started to rethink everything from fashion weeks to their supply chains um, to really, you know, do we really need 16 collections a year? Um, do we need to grow so much? You know, I think, I think there is a bit of that conversation happening, but I also think that these companies have, they have a lot of capital and they have a lot of money and there is more of a expectation of brands to really serve the communities in which they build. So one example that I saw that really surprised me, but I thought, you know, that's sort of where I hope things go. A couple of months ago, I saw a story about Chanel investing in, um, in providing solar panels for low-income housing in Los Angeles. And it was a little bit surprising, but I thought, okay, well, they, of course, Los Angeles is a big market for Chanel. There's a lot of people buying their products there. And exactly, they sh I feel like that is exactly the right thing to be doing. Um, and they didn't make a big fanfare about it. And again, I also think that that's important, not just for it to be a marketing campaign, but actually something that is, you know, action speaks louder than words. So I think sustainability is, a, is huge. And then inclusion. And again, I think it's the same issue as sustainability because inclusion is your customer. You know, when you, when a lot of brands come to us wanting to understand Gen Z, partly it is because that is the most diverse generation in the history of, you know, of modern history at least. And that is their world. Inclusion is their world. You know, so many things are out of date, like, like excluding people or, or not, you know, representing certain people. They just don't see that as part of their value system. And so if you want to, if you want to survive in the future, you need to understand the lives of your customer. And that means understanding inclusion in that deep way that I sort of mentioned around truth about diversity. Yeah. So my final question, uh, which I ask all my guests is the luxury item question. So if you were stranded on a deserted Island and you could have only one luxury item, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of transportation or anything that requires mobile service. What would that one luxury item be? Mm, okay. It actually, um, that's a pretty easy one for me. I would say my yoga mat because it's an all-in-one. It's, uh, it's physical health, it's mental health, it's entertainment, it's introspection. It's, um, uh, it's, you know, one piece of material that does it all. So that would be my luxury. Does it have any, does it have reflective material on it just in case an airplane happens to be flying over? <laughs> could I, could I like pimp my yoga mat and have it be a little bit more reflective? <laughs> yes, you can. Excellent. Anything goes here. Nadi Tuma Weldon, Senior Vice President, Director of Truth Central in the McCann World Group. Thank you so much for coming on. And, and this was a fascinating discussion. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It was a real pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.